Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series in the book of Jude with a message entitled, Remaining in the Love of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Jude, verses 20 to 25, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The last section of Jude changes dramatically. You know, up till now, the book of Jude has been an utter denunciation of the false teachers who are threatening the vibrancy and the health of the local church. But the last section, from verses 20 to 25, the end of this short book, well, it's a response. When I think about what Jude says in this last section, you know, I'm reminded of Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus. It's recorded in Revelation 2, verse 2. You know, Jesus there commends that embattled church, and I quote, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. There's a world in those words. The church of Ephesus had at one time been a church very much like the one Jude warns about in this letter. The Apostle Paul, speaking to their elders, had said, and I'm quoting from Acts 20, verses 29 to 30, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. See, Paul knew that false teachers would arise from among the core of the elders. And so Paul had to send Timothy to Ephesus and put an end to the abusive teaching of some of their elders. And in the end, according to Jesus, having contended for the faith, as Jude would have said it, the faithful members of the church in Ephesus had prevailed, that removed the elders who taught false doctrines and had publicly denounced their false teaching. Ah, but all was not well. According to Jesus, and here I'm quoting Revelation 2 verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And I can almost imagine how this would have happened rooting out false teachers and caring about doctrinal purity. I mean, all that stuff, that's good, but it comes with a danger. And the danger is that the church becomes judgmental and mean-spirited. It lacks love and a willingness to be gracious to the erring. It becomes suspicious and fractious and willing to go to war at a moment's notice. And in truth, that's exactly what one frequently finds in churches that stress doctrinal purity. You know, sometimes such a church lengthens the essentials into areas that are not essentials at all, and they're quick to condemn faithful believers over non-essential issues. And eventually, these churches become increasingly small and irrelevant while they convince themselves they're the only pure church left in the world. And Jude knew this potential. And so even while he was quick to utterly condemn the false teachers, he's equally quick to give the church a way of responding to the present crisis. We will read that Jude does not say, you know, and from now on, be very quick to excommunicate people or be very quick to be suspicious of all who teach or be very quick to be separatists. No, no, none of that. Instead, let's listen to what Jude tells the true church of Jesus. And here I'm reading verses 20 to 23. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, before we get into the details, would you notice that, that in verse 20, Jude has turned from speaking about the false teachers to giving instructions, well, four of them, to the true people of God. Notice that he says, but you brothers, but, meaning in contrast to what I've said about the false teachers, I have something very different to say to you. You're not those who have crept into the church deceitfully. You are the true brothers. Then notice also that Jude speaks of four Christian virtues. First, faith, and second, prayer, third, love, and finally, mercy. Notice also as Jude gives the commands, he mentions first the Holy Spirit, then God the Father, and then finally, Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jude wants believers to turn fully to the triune God and to remember how it is that that the one true God wants them to live. You know, at the risk of being repetitive here, let me say it again. After we've dealt with false teachers, it's just as imperative that the people of God give their energy, not on repeating everything the false teachers have taught and done, but to turn their energy fully on what the one true God wants of their lives, that is, how to live faithfully. So let's look at the four commands that Jude gives. The first command, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Well, the most holy faith, well, that's the faith that, as Jude has already said, it's been once for all given to the saints. It's the faith that the apostles taught to the church. It's it's the faith that the apostles received from Jesus. They've made known to us. You know, Acts 2.42 says, the first church gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, the task of the church is to study and know the scriptures. 2 Timothy 2.15 commands us to rightly handle the word of truth. And Jews said that this word is holy and that it's different from all other words. The scripture presents us with God's truth. It presents us with a final truth, an ultimate truth, a rock upon which we have come to rest. Now, Jude's second command, pray in the Holy Spirit. Look, I know there are some that argue that this phrase must refer to speaking in tongues. Now, to be clear, I'm not opposed to speaking in tongues. It's it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. But, But that's not what Jude has in mind here. Consider Romans 8, verse 15. There Paul writes, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then in the next verse, Paul writes, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And in Romans 8, 26, Paul even speaks of the Spirit interceding for us. Well, taken all together, we learn that the Holy Spirit has a unique role to play in our praying. He assures us that we are the children of God. He urges us into the presence of the Father, and he even prays for us on our behalf. To pray in the Holy Spirit is to pray in the will of God. It's to pray continually. It's to keep on praying. It's to be ever mindful of God's presence. Jude's third command is found in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That leads to eternal life. Now, that verse or this command is built upon the last two. As you make scripture and prayer your foundation, use that to keep yourself in the love of God. Now, the actual Greek here could mean either keep loving God, or it could mean keep focusing on God's love for you. See, either translation would be possible, 
But I think that Jude has in mind that we should keep focusing on God's love for his people. Keep yourself in God's love for you. Don't stray from his love. You remember that Jesus said something very similar to that in John 15, verse 9. There he said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love, or remain in my love, or don't stray from my love. And the implications of that teaching are profound. For one, when Jesus set to explain this, he said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's to say, remain submissive to what I command you to do. Don't you rebel against my word. And Jude says this, and he adds, waiting for the mercy of God. He means stay within the love of God as you await the second coming of Jesus. Know that his coming is at hand and cling to the promise that he has given. In the cross, mercy, not judgment, await you. Now the fourth command. And before I examine this, I want to acknowledge that some of the ancient manuscripts present slightly different readings of verses 22 and 23. And without explaining those differences, I'm going to simply assume that the reading that we have that's, that's translated in the English Standard Version actually accurately reflects what Jude would have originally written. And so after encouraging believers to remain faithful to the apostolic truth that's found in our Bible— And after encouraging them to be faithful in prayer, and after encouraging them to remain in the love of God, Jude gives believers the final command. And his fourth command is that they should learn to respond appropriately to the effects of false teaching. See, notice I didn't say respond appropriately to the false teachers. False teachers are to be removed from the congregation. They are to be given no quarter. If you contend for the faith, you're going to have to defeat the false teachers. But Jude knows there's a world of difference between a false teacher and someone who's influenced by a false teacher, or someone who's been confused by a false teacher, or someone who's been encouraged to sin by a false teacher. False teaching always leads to untold harm among the people of God. Some are in danger of abandoning the faith. Some descend into immoral living. Some are on the very verge of divine judgment and need to be rescued. You know, in essence, Jude wants the faithful church to be merciful to those who have been led astray. What a lesson that is for us today. I Will Tell. This is a series where Dr. Neufeld focuses on the theme verse and a command found in Psalm 78, verse 4. In it, we're compelled by these words, I will not hide the great deeds of the Lord, which he has done in the past from the next generation. This popular series provides you the tools and incentive to share the gospel. It will help inspire you rather than guilt you into action. It reminds us that we each bear responsibility to intentionally share the truths of the gospel the God of the Bible, his deeds, and his provision for all those that believe. This month, we're excited to offer this entire series on CD for anyone who would ask. Our gift to encourage and inspire. Ask for a copy of I Will Tell for yourself or even pass it on to a friend. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. When Jude admonishes Christians about their obligations 
to those who have been deceived by false teachers, he, he actually speaks about three different categories of people. The first is among those who doubt. Well, Jude doesn't tell us what it is they're doubting. Perhaps they're doubting the basics of the faith, or perhaps they're doubting the teachings of the apostles. But doubt can become pervasive. It can become instinctual. You know, there are those who doubt but don't even know what to do about it. Even when presented with overwhelming evidence, they still doubt. It's the reaction of the fearful heart that simply doesn't know how to believe anymore. And that's what false teachers did to these people. And truth be told, when people come under the deception of false teachers after it's all said and done, and the false teachers have been exposed for who they are, and they've been released from their grasp, some people never trust again. To them, Jude commends believers to show mercy. That is, don't throw them out of the fellowship. Tenderly direct them to the truth in a way that helps them believe. The second group of people are in a much more serious condition. Jude says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. See, that's a picture of those who have swallowed what the false teachers have taught them, hook, line, and sinker. These are in danger of damnation. They've essentially abandoned the true faith, and they are now believing a lie. They right now stand at the very point of condemnation. And the image of snatching them from the fire is a much more forceful image than the first one. This is not an image of tenderness. This is, if you think about it, a more a violent image. Jude wants the faithful to warn these people sternly, remind them of the truth that their soul is now in danger, be aggressive with them, fight for their salvation, says Jude. And third, there are those people who have allowed the flesh to rule them. Or to put it more plainly, these are people who have fallen into sin that is inconsistent with the life of Christ. Remember, Jude has been teaching that the false teachers are given to sensuality, and, and so you'd have to imagine that their followers have abandoned the Christian sexual ethic, and they're now living in sin, sin that would disqualify anyone on the final day. What should one do about the so-called Christian who's living in sensuality? Jude says, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That is, let them know that repentance will bring them back. But when you interact with these sensuous people, have fear. That is to say, understand how enticing their sin is. Be very wary and nurture in your soul a genuine hatred of this kind of sin. That's wonderful instruction. If you want to be a church that contends for the one true faith, you can't just fight against false teachers. You have to watch the nature of your own faith. You have to exert efforts to win back those who are led astray. It's this attitude that prevents a church from becoming either lax and permissive about false teaching, which, by the way, in that case, such a church would be negligent around the internal salvation of its members. But on the other hand, if, if you fight against false teachers, it's possible for the church to become harsh and unloving. Jude shows us the way of Christ, both the way of truth and the way of love. And so having urged Christians to contend for the faith and having utterly denounced any form of Christian teaching that strays from the message of the apostles and the prophets, or to put it in our words, that strays from the message of the Bible, Jude now turns to bless the people of God. I'm reading the last verses, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, 
be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. I need to confess, I have an affection for those verses. I have often quoted them at the end of a sermon. They're beautiful benediction. The language is poetic. The meaning is profound. But rightly understood, verses 24 and 25 are a marvelous expression of praise to God for our salvation. And so just so we understand, before Jude expresses glory, majesty, and dominion and authority to God, notice that this altogether glorious God has done something wonderful for his people. We remember that back in verse 1, Jude referred to Christians as those who were called. It was God, he then said, who first invited you into his salvation. He was the one who opened the way for you. And now Jude says to the people of God, the one who called you, well, he's also the one who will keep you from stumbling. Now, it's true that back in verse 20, Jude was encouraging God's people to build themselves up in the most holy faith and to be constantly in a spirit-led attitude of prayer and to build an expectation of the coming of Jesus so as to stay in his grace. Yeah, the assurance that God will keep his elect, his, his called ones from stumbling, this doesn't lead us to an attitude of complacency. No, no, we must cooperate with grace. The knowledge that he will keep us, well, that leads us to press on, that we strive for holiness, that we're diligent in our Bible reading, that we remain in fellowship with God's people, that we press hard into Christ. The promise of God's keeping power doesn't lead to complacency at all. But having said that, let's not fool ourselves. We will remain firm until the end, not because of our efforts, but because of the one who is able to prevent us from falling. See, I have a story to tell in relation to this very thing. I was a new believer. I had recently come to Christ. I was then in, in the late part of my 19th year of life. But I was struggling. I knew my former ways, and I knew how easily unsettled I was. Temptations raged in my soul, and I wondered if I would make it. And furthermore, I was so unsettled by my own salvation. I mean, was this merely my own idea, I wondered? Was my salvation real? Maybe I thought I'm self-deceived. I can't remember how, but somehow I stumbled upon Romans 8, 31 to 38. And there I read, who is to condemn? And then I read, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then I'll never forget reading. I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers and so on, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that day, I'll never forget it. I was in the basement of my parents' home, an open Bible in front of me, and I was on my knees. And I told God, if you said so, I believe it. Today, I settle on this promise. To him, says Jude, who is able to keep you from stumbling. That is to say, to the one who will ensure that we remain faithful to him all the way through to the end of life. What a glorious thing to say. And then Jude is not done. To the one who is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Notice Jude has moved from remaining faithful in this life to arriving in heaven. And as we arrive, we realize we're blameless. That's not to say we've never sinned, but rather it is to say, that all my sins were laid on Christ. And so the blame for my rebellion was nailed to his cross. It's not only that I'm blameless before him on the final day, but that I am blameless, says Jude, with great joy. My heart's beating out of my chest with ecstasy. Delight comes from my mouth as I declare his praise. You know, every once in a while, someone will ask me, do you believe in eternal security? So listen to my response. He is able to keep me. He is able to place me before his throne. 
I didn't get there by my faithfulness. I got there by his faithfulness. I didn't get credit for a faithful life. He got credit for my faithful life. And on that basis, Jude ends by saying, to God alone be the glory. That is, not to God and ourselves be the glory. No, no. To God alone be the glory. To God alone be majesty. That is, to God alone may splendor be ascribed. To God alone be dominion, for he alone rules over my salvation. I don't rule my salvation. He does. To God alone be the authority over my soul. To the only God, says Jude, to this only God who is my Savior. I contribute nothing to my salvation. All credit for my salvation, my life of faithfulness, my redemption, all credit belongs to him. And how did God accomplish my salvation, says Jude, through Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent into the world that I might be saved. Let's return to the theme of Jude. Christians, he said, are to contend for the faith locked in a battle with false teachers who seek to pervert the true ways of God. There are those among us who are in great danger because they're listening to false teachers, and we ourselves must take care to remain in his love. But when it's said and done, and the final chapter has been written, and we reflect on the fact that we have safely been brought through the present battle and are presented before his throne, what will we say? Once all the evidence is before us, we will say, that we have not done one thing that caused this faithfulness. To God alone be the glory. Planned my salvation from eternity past. He kept me from stumbling in the hour of trial, and he presented me with great joy before his throne. I did nothing, for as Jude said from the beginning, I was chosen. No, no, to God alone be the glory. John, I really like this message because it reminds us of two things. We have to be faithful to God. We have to seek after purity. And at the same time, you know, we need to provide correction. We need to, and be loving in that correction. But you know, the two don't really correlate in our society today. It's sort of, you know, if you correct me, that's unloving. Yeah, I know that's uh, why a lot of churches find it extremely difficult, let's say, to practice excommunication when you have somebody who will not repent of their wickedness or will not repent of their false teaching. So it's difficult to take action. It's much easier to simply say, we're just going to let it go and not do anything about it. And then we you know, convince ourselves we're still loving. But there is the other side, isn't there? I mean, the other side is, you know, we, we just become these stern individuals who just correct constantly and who never, you know, exhibit this grace of God. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for this wonderful series in the book of Jude. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. These efforts have helped transform the lives of thousands of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. You know, whatever stage of life you're in, you've probably considered the impact you want to leave on your family, on your community, or in the world. Providing sustainable support to the Back to the Bible Canada ministry is one key way you can have an impact on the lives of thousands. We have a goal of adding 331 new monthly givers to our new monthly partner program, the 1119 Fellowship. Won't you help us reach that goal? 
and ensure the message of God's Word continues to be available and its message continues to transform lives. To learn more about the program, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship.